The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello there, welcome to episode 40 of Things Are About To Get Weird. I feel like the past 10 episodes have zoomed right by. It's so strange that we're out of the 30s and into the 40s already. So a big thank you for joining me and being part of this wild ride through some of the most extraordinary, bizarre and mind-blowing stories out there. Which brings me neatly on to the case I'll be covering in our episode today. Now, I've given my fair share of warnings in the past when our stories have dealt with more sensitive or graphic tales, but the one I need to give you today is next level. The case of Mary Vincent and what happened to her back in the late 1970s is just about as terrible as it gets. Stories like these are the reason I mark the podcast as explicit automatically on all the podcast players, just in case I was ever to cover something as brutal as this. There will be brief mentions of sexual violence in this episode, as well as some truly gory details that it's really impossible to skip over in this tale and you'll see why. The person involved in this story was also under the age of 18. She was just 15 to be exact. So it's another element that makes this one extra harrowing. But if you were to ask me which true crime case has stuck with me most deeply ever since I first heard it, Mary Vincent's name would be right up there for me, because her story is nothing short of astonishing. This is a slightly more well-known case than I usually cover, but I've known for a long time that I wanted to do so. So if you're still with me after all of those warnings, allow me to share this staggering story with you. Mary Vincent was born in 1963 and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada by her parents, Lucy and Herb. She grew up surrounded by her siblings as one of seven children, and unsurprisingly, given their location, their family had ties to the fast-paced, wild culture and industry of Vegas. Lucy worked as a casino dealer, and Herb was a repairman for the gambling machines within the casinos, so the family's livelihood was very much linked to one of the very things that makes Las Vegas such a popular destination. As Mary grew up and became a teenager, she too had dreams of working within some of the world-famous Vegas strip hotels as a dancer. More specifically, she longed to make it to the position of lead dancer at the Lido de Paris cabaret show that was once a fixture at the Stardust Hotel and Casino. If you've ever been to Vegas, you'll know that the shows there are seriously spectacular, and I understand why she was so captivated by the idea of starring in one someday. Although her parents were strict and always expected their children to behave and perform well academically, Mary had developed somewhat of a rebellious streak. By the time she was 15, her parents had decided to separate and were going through acrimonious divorce proceedings which had a profound effect on their daughter. She started to skip classes at school, she wore makeup, which Lucy and Herb didn't approve of, and she'd also occasionally run away from home in an attempt to just escape for a while. 
I'm sure many of us remember being this age and having those rebellious moments. I know I certainly did. And when you add in Mary's difficult family situation, it's even less surprising that she would quote-unquote act out from time to time. And by the summer of 1978, Mary was so determined to get away from Vegas for a while that, together with her boyfriend, she left Nevada and headed to California in his car. By all accounts, whilst I'm sure their initial escape felt quite thrilling, the reality of this move was less than ideal, as the pair had very little money and actually ended up living out of their vehicle. That was until this story takes its first of many incredibly dark turns. Mary's boyfriend was arrested on suspicion of rape following an attack on a female high school student, and Mary was obviously completely horrified by this. Again, wanting to get far away from the situation she found herself in, she headed back out on a solo journey through California, though she sometimes stayed with an uncle of hers in the small town of SoCal. But... All that was set to change on the fateful day of September the 29th, 1978. That morning, Mary had woken up and decided to make her way to her grandfather's home in the city of Corona, California. For context, this is a long trip when you consider that the two locations are within the same state and that Mary no longer had access to a car. From door to door, the drive would usually take around six hours, and given that this was the 1970s, it wasn't at all uncommon that someone would resort to hitchhiking as a way to travel long distances in this situation. In fact, it was so normalised that 15-year-old Mary thought next to nothing of it. She was somewhere near to the city of Berkeley when a middle-aged man, who has since been described as a grandfatherly type, stopped and offered her a lift. Mary must have thought the man looked somewhat trustworthy, as she gratefully accepted the ride and climbed into his van. This man was then 50-year-old Lawrence Singleton. Let me tell you about this horror of a human being. Though he may have looked harmless at first glance, Lawrence, who was sometimes known as Larry, had a deeply violent side to him. He had worked as a merchant sailor and was known to be a very heavy drinker. This is what would reportedly trigger his violent outbursts. He had previously been convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor and had been divorced twice by 1978. It's reported that at the start of that summer, Lawrence had had a serious falling out with his daughter Deborah and this had apparently really affected him. Some articles verge on implying that this perhaps sent him into the spiral that resulted in the actions that followed, but personally, I don't buy it. I think there was something awful deep within Lawrence Singleton, and I just don't believe a bad relationship with his daughter caused him to do what he did next. This is going to get rough. Not too long after Mary got into Lawrence's vehicle, she felt comfortable enough to light up a cigarette as she prepared for the long journey ahead. He had told her that although he was on his way to Reno in Nevada, he would make a detour and drop her off in Los Angeles. This would be quite a large detour, mind you, but Mary found herself with very few options, and so the pair set off in the van. After smoking her cigarette for a moment or so, the smoke apparently caused Mary to sneeze. 
Lawrence took this opportunity to reach over to her and placed his hand on her neck under the guise of checking her temperature, asking her if she felt unwell. Mary immediately saw this as a red flag and although she wasn't perturbed enough to ask him to stop and let her out, she shuffled further away from him towards the edge of her seat and her guard was definitely up. After a while, Lawrence told Mary he needed to stop off at his home not too far from San Francisco to pick up some laundry, and I can only imagine that Mary didn't find this all that strange. After all, they were in for a fairly long ride, and the idea of him needing to stop and collect some items from his house didn't sound unreasonable. After Mary helped him to carry the bundles of laundry from his home to his van, the pair set out on the road once more. Lawrence began to drink from a milk carton, though it's believed that it was in fact some kind of alcoholic spirit in the container rather than milk. Mary was exhausted at this point, and feeling that it was probably safe to do so, she settled into the van's passenger seat and soon drifted off to sleep. Her rest, however, was not destined to last for long. After a short while, Mary jolted awake and took a moment to survey the progress of their journey. Almost instantly, she realised that they were travelling in the wrong direction entirely, heading towards Nevada rather than Los Angeles as Lawrence had promised. Mary was now on high alert, despite having just woken up, and she subtly felt around in the area near her seat before grasping onto a pointed stick that had been stashed there. She thrust it towards him, stopping short of actually hitting him with it, and demanded that he turn the van back around onto the correct road. At this point, Lawrence conceded, saying that he was, quote, just an honest man who made a mistake, and he did in fact get them back on course. But any sense of security or relief Mary felt in that moment was doomed to be short-lived. After driving back onto the right road, Lawrence Singleton told Mary he needed to stop and take a bathroom break. Presumably, there were no service stations or rest stops nearby, as he pulled off the main freeway and went down a canyon road, which was completely off the beaten track and totally deserted. Mary also needed a comfort break, so the two got out of the van and walked over to separate areas to relieve themselves. Afterwards, as Mary was crouched down, retying her shoelace, she felt a heavy blow across her back, followed by a second to the back of her head. Lawrence then grabbed her and dragged her towards the back of the van. He opened the door and forced her into the vehicle, telling her that if she screamed, he would kill her. He tied Mary's hands behind her back and proceeded to rape her. The terror this poor teenager must have felt is incredibly distressing to think about, and sadly, this was only the start of Singleton's attack. After he had raped her, he left her tied up in the back of the van whilst he drove further down the canyon road, where Mary begged him to let her go. He told her that he would set her free if she followed his orders, and instructed her to drink from a cup of alcohol he had in the van. Consumed by fear and desperate to be untied, Mary did as he said and drank from the cup before she was sexually assaulted once again. 
It's said that at this point, Mary passed out, and when she came around, Singleton instructed her to walk to the edge of the road and lie down. Remembering his words about letting her go if she complied with his demands, Mary lay down on the hard ground, and what took place next was just plain evil. After picking something up from the back of his van, Lawrence Singleton walked over to Mary and said, "'You want to be free? I'll set you free.'" He then brandished a hatchet and proceeded to cut off Mary's left arm below the elbow. He then grabbed her right arm and once again he slammed the small axe down, severing her remaining forearm. Through Mary's screams, he delivered one final verbal indignity towards her, saying, Okay, now you're free. Oh god, it's horrible. Wanting to make sure that Mary would not be able to make it away from the canyon road alive, Singleton then pushed her down a steep embankment towards a concrete culvert, which is a stream or drain tunnel that usually runs underneath a road. After callously shoving her inside the concrete pipe, where he presumed her remains would not be discovered for some time, he then turned and made the escape Mary was so very desperate to do for herself before this brutal attack. Lawrence Singleton left the 15-year-old to bleed out from the catastrophic injuries he had inflicted upon her. Now, the next morning, along or at least very near to the same canyon road where Singleton had carried out his crime, drove a car belonging to a couple who had missed the turning for the freeway, no doubt frustrated to find themselves effectively in the middle of nowhere and trying to work out how to get back onto a main road. The couple were surveying their unexpected surroundings when they spotted something unusual. And in one of the most incredible twists I have ever heard in a true crime case, the pair realised that the figure they had spotted was that of a teenage girl, her upper arms raised in the air, nude, exhausted and traumatised, but alive. Despite everything she had suffered, Mary Vincent had survived. Against all odds, the teenager had managed to not only drag herself out of the concrete pipe after regaining consciousness, but dug deep enough both mentally and physically to walk around three miles in search of help, with her arms raised to help keep the muscles in place and reduce further blood loss. Some sources say that she used the mud near the tunnel to help stem the bleeding from her wounds, which is harrowing to think about. Mary had followed the sound of the traffic from the nearby freeway to try and get herself to safety, and her unimaginable strength and determination had paid off. The couple who spotted her bundled Mary into their car and got her the medical help she desperately needed. No matter how many times I read about this story, I cannot get my head around how she survived. It feels like a true miracle. The amount of blood Mary must have lost when she was unconscious in the tunnel must have been enormous, not to mention the extreme shock she must have been in, both in her body and in her mind. But that day, she displayed the kind of courage and true grit that is almost impossible for most of us to imagine. 
Now, I wish I could skip straight ahead to later on in Mary's adult life, but coming off the high of knowing she survived, this story unfortunately takes several more turns. Some tragic and difficult, and some plain weird when it comes to how this case was handled legally. I'm going to talk about that and Lawrence Singleton first, so that we can then forget him and never have to give him another moment of attention. So after her ordeal, Mary was able to provide such a detailed description of Singleton, which was then used to produce a police identity sketch, that he was very quickly recognised from it and thankfully arrested. He was charged not only with attempted murder, but also rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping and mayhem. But when it came time to take the stand at his trial, Singleton began a crusade of lies and false stories to try and free himself from custody. Amongst other things, he tried to make out that Mary was a sex worker, and that she had in fact been attacked by two fellow hitchhikers who she'd been intimate with. This was, of course, a total fabrication, and in yet another extraordinary display of strength, Mary actually took to the witness stand to testify against Singleton. After all he put her through, it's astonishing to me that she was able to face him in court, but she did. Mary was able to tell the jury that it was, in fact, the man she referred to only as her attacker, who, quote, did this to her referring to the prosthetic forearms she'd received as part of her extensive medical treatment. Lawrence Singleton was found guilty, and despite him quietly conveying a disturbing message to Mary in the courtroom, saying, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life, what happened at his sentencing is truly bizarre. At the time, there were some ridiculously lax laws in California, which meant that the maximum sentence he could receive was just 14 years in prison. That's a year less than the age Mary was at the time of the attack. It just feels completely wrong to me. But it gets so much worse. Just eight years and four months into his sentence, Singleton was released from prison early. This caused absolute outrage, especially from the communities which were being considered as places to house him after his release. What makes it even more maddening is the fact he showed no remorse whatsoever for what he'd done. In fact, he'd actually spent his time in prison convincing himself that he was the real victim of the crime, not Mary. He claimed that Mary had threatened to accuse him of rape before the attack began, and said that this and the fact she pointed at him with that stick in the van caused him to become violent. This is unbelievable, but he went as far as to try and sue Mary for forcible kidnap for the purposes of robbery. I wish I was joking. Thankfully, the lawsuit was dismissed and never went anywhere, but it must have been so distressing for Mary. She had actually successfully sued him following the attack and was awarded over $2.5 million in damages, but Singleton never paid her a penny of the money. Eventually, after his release, Singleton moved to Florida, where he was originally from, and I wish I could tell you that from here, he disappeared into the void, never to hurt anyone again. But there is one final terrible act he committed. 
On the 19th of February 1997, Singleton attacked and murdered a young mother of three named Roxanne Hayes. After luring her to his home, he stabbed her multiple times and was discovered covered in blood alongside Roxanne's body shortly after the killing. As this happened in Florida, a state which is notorious for handing down severe punishments for most crimes, let alone one as serious as this, after being found guilty of poor Roxanne's murder, Singleton was given the death penalty. However, on the 28th of December 2001, he died from cancer whilst on death row at the age of 74. I honestly have no words. It seems futile to point out how much of a disastrous failure of the legal system this case was. Clearly, he should never have had the opportunity to harm anyone ever again. It's baffling to me that this clearly violent, dangerous criminal was set free into the world after just eight years behind bars. We know that Roxanne's loved ones were utterly devastated by her murder, but sadly there's comparatively little information available about her. Whilst her killer was obsessed over by the media at the time, and even given the nickname The Mad Chopper, which I really hate but I'm done with saying his name for now. I want to focus back onto Mary and what her life has looked like since that awful day in 1978. Now, Mary has spoken out numerous times about her immense struggles in the years following the attack. Speaking to the LA Times in 1997, she said, "'He destroyed everything about me, my way of thinking, my way of life.'" holding on to innocence, and I'm still doing everything I can to hold on. In the same interview, she described how the assault had ruined her dreams of being a dancer, saying, When this happened, they had to take some parts out of my leg just to save my right arm. After that, I wasn't able to dance anymore. Mary suffered from vivid nightmares for years after her ordeal, and her family felt the shockwaves from what happened to her afterwards too. Her dad, Herb, began to fantasise about killing the man who had tried to murder his daughter. Although they were separated, her parents ended up arguing more than ever, and the whole family wound up living in different parts of the country. Although Mary did end up graduating from high school, she spoke about how difficult it was to still live in Vegas, and have everyone around her know what she'd been through. She also found it difficult to form trusting relationships with men into her adult life too. Her struggles are completely understandable, and it was heartbreaking to read about how things like her awful nightmares and other trauma responses returned after Singleton was arrested for Roxanne Hayes' murder. But amongst all of the darkness, some true lights shone through for Mary. She became a mother to two boys, something she has credited with helping her to get through some of her toughest moments. The way that she's spoken about her children in interviews is always so sweet, and that's not all. Something else came into Mary's life after the attack that she never anticipated, and that was her love of creating art. In an interview with the Ventura County Star, she said... I couldn't draw a straight line. Even with a ruler, I would mess it up. This is something that woke up after the attack, and my artwork has inspired me and given me self-esteem. Mary's art became a huge focus for her as an adult, 
And to this day, she works mainly with chalk pastels to create portraits, favouring drawing strong female figures. I've seen some of her work and she really is very talented. I also read about how she enjoys experimenting with creating new custom prosthetic forearms and hands and how she made one for herself that she wears when she's bowling, which I think is amazing. Incredibly, Mary also became a powerful and prominent victim's advocate campaigning to help ensure survivors are treated with respect within the criminal justice system. Her road to this activism wasn't easy, as her early attempts at things like speaking in schools about safety left her feeling vulnerable, after some obscene comments were made by students. After this, she stopped attending schools to give talks, which must have been such a knock to her confidence. I can't imagine how heartless you'd have to be to say something cruel to someone who'd been through so much. But as the decades passed and she found renewed strength, Mary would make speeches and attend rallies to help fight for the rights of those affected by violent crimes, which just goes to show that the tenacity she displayed as a 15-year-old is clearly something that runs deep in her personality. There aren't many recent articles or interviews with Mary, and it does seem that she's generally stepped away from the public eye. As of now, in 2023, she will be around 60 years old and although she did reveal some details about her daily life a few years back, it only feels right to respect the fact that she clearly likes to keep her current circumstances more private. I wanted to leave you with one last quote from Mary, as her words really do hold power. Speaking in 2009, she told the crowd at a march in Ventura County, I would never have been able to turn from victim to survivor without advocates and attorneys. I will never get over being attacked. I wake up every morning with a constant reminder, she said as she held up her prosthetic arms, but I can move past it. I sincerely hope you're all okay after that story. Make sure you go and watch or listen to something light-hearted after we're done here. I know I will be for sure. Even though I already knew the details before doing my formal research for this episode, it really got me. I know that Mary's story has gained so much attention over the decades because it's seen as so dramatic and sensational But all of that aside, what I take from it is how amazing she is. When I think of her case, I don't even picture Lawrence Singleton. All I see in my mind is the word survivor. I truly hope with all my heart that wherever Mary is now, and whatever she's doing alongside her art, that she is happy and loved and has found peace. As I say, I know this episode was unbelievably heavy, but I hope you understand why her astonishing story has stuck with me for so long. I think after the intensity of this case, we need to move along swiftly to our outro feature for a change of pace. So without further ado, here is Weird Media. I'm taking a break from recommending a TV show this time around because I feel like I've talked about quite a few recently. So today's weird media shout out goes to one of my very favourite YouTube channels, which has a link back to one of the stories I previously talked about on the podcast. 
Back in episode 13, I told you all about Gary Young, the bizarre and incredibly controversial founder of one of the world's biggest multi-level marketing companies, Young Living. And as I mentioned in that episode, I spend quite a bit of time watching and listening to people talk about the unethical and downright strange practices that go on within a lot of these similar companies built around the MLM business structure. Now, in my opinion, one of the very best creators out there shining a light on these dodgy companies is the lovely Hannah from the YouTube channel, Hannah Alonzo. I've been watching Hannah now for a year or so, and I think she is wonderful. What makes her channel perfect for a recommendation in weird media is because of the content of some of the stories she shares and reacts to in her videos, as well as the information found in things like her deep dives. Hannah has a series where she reads out MLM horror stories sent in by viewers who have a story relating to one of these companies to share, and many of them are truly wild. Some of them are heartbreaking, most of them are infuriating in one way or another, and others are just plain bonkers. Hannah's videos really help to showcase exactly why MLM companies are considered by many to be predatory, and she often gets into the finer details too, digging into, for example, the different compensation plans and exploring why so few people ever make a single penny in these business opportunities. Not only are Hannah's videos fascinating, but they're so well presented too. She's very compassionate and level-headed, but she isn't afraid to call things out that she feels are wrong either. Also, if you're a cat person, you will love her channel, as either one or both of her two cats often make appearances too. I mean, I'm a dog person, and even I think they are very cute so her videos will be a real treat for any feline fans out there. I often listen to Hannah's videos in the background when I'm doing my makeup or cooking, almost like their podcast episodes. So if you're interested in the world of MLMs and scams in general, definitely be sure to check out Hannah Alonzo. That's A-L-O-N-Z-O over on YouTube. I'll put the link to her channel in the show notes for this episode too. Okay, here's a short rundown of the articles which helped me research today's story. First up was a piece from the Los Angeles Times. That was by Paul Dean from February 1997. There was a super helpful article from the Ventura County Star newspaper. That one was by Anne Callas from May 2009. There was a really detailed article from the archives of People magazine of all places. That was from 1988 by Diana Wagoner and Michelle Green. There was a great piece on allthat'sinteresting.com by Austin Harvey from December 2022. And finally, an article on Ranker by Laura Allen from August 2022. A quick recap of all the ways you can get in touch and share your thoughts and comments and story requests. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast. And on Twitter, or whatever it's called this week, it's at abouttogetweird. On Facebook, if you search things are about to get weird, you can find both the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. If you want to pop me an email, the address is 
thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. And both our Patreon page and our merch page are always linked in the show notes too. Making a pledge on Patreon or picking up some merch are absolutely amazing ways to support the podcast and help me to continue producing our episodes. So thank you very much indeed to everyone who gets involved. And of course, a quick star rating on Spotify or a written review on Apple Podcasts are always massively appreciated if you're enjoying our episodes. We're still riding high in the Spotify UK true crime charts and it's all down to you. So a massive thank you for listening and being part of the Things Are About To Get Weird crew. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. <laughs>